0: Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. This is Episode 8, Making the Rules. Thanks for joining me. This podcast focuses on appellate issues and appellate practice in Florida in both the state and federal courts. Each week, we'll be talking about Florida appellate practice through discussions with members of Florida's appellate community. This week, my guest is appellate lawyer Courtney Brewer. Courtney is a board-certified appellate specialist and a shareholder in the Bishop and Mills Law Firm in Tallahassee. Courtney is currently the chair of the Florida Bar's Appellate Court Rules Committee. My interview with Courtney is coming up next. Courtney, thank you for joining me on the Issues on Appeal podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dwayne.
0: So now, I was going to say that you're a shareholder in the Mills firm... But I think that you are now a shareholder in Bishop and Mills. Uh, <laughs> a a you used to be an appellate boutique firm, I would call it. Are you more than that now?
1: <laughs> we we are. This is um. It's it's uh, a new firm that um. Us on the Mills side, we're still located in Tallahassee. We're still you know, the appellate boutique folks here, Um, but we have joined forces with Tom Bishop and his shop over in Jacksonville, and uh, his shop will continue to work on uh, all manners of complex civil litigation, commercial litigation, um, all the kind of trial stuff over there, and so it's it's a new, new joining of forces, and um, but I am continuing to still focus my practice solely on appellate and trial support.
0: And so what are your primary areas of appellate practice?
1: It's mainly civil appeals, uh, personal injury, medical malpractice, some constitutional law stuff in there most recently i 've actually had a couple of uh, been working a lot on a couple of capital cases that we have that is not at all <laughs> what our our expertise is in um, so i don 't you know want to advertise us as we 're taking on capital appeals. It just so happens that one case is um, one that we've handled pro bono, and my partner John Mills has handled pro bono for a decade now, uh, and that's just kind of finally come to fruition in, in, with merits briefing at the Florida Supreme Court. And then most recently, uh, we have a slew of cases that we were, or I should say three cases, that we were appointed to represent uh, the the inmates in their federal habeas petition uh, appeals. And so um you know it's one of those things where when a federal judge asks you to represent somebody you don't say no. <laughs> and right. and we've you know learned a lot through that process and um you know hopefully done a good job for for our clients in those cases. But anyways, to get back to it, mainly civil appeals uh in in the areas I listed.
0: And so I asked most of my guests, is there something in particular that you love about being an appellate lawyer?
1: Yeah, I, I love most of it. I love, I love the writing. That's, that's my favorite part. That's probably what you get from most of your guests. Um, I love to write. I love to research. I love to dig in on these problems and, and think about them very intently, and you bring it all together I, that's that 's the part that kind of brings me the most joy when i 've finally gone all the way through the record when i 've finally done all the legal research when i 've you know thought about the case and and come up with our themes and and our issues, and all of that comes together into one document that's that 's really the part that I love. I love the editing process particularly so all of that is great. I love the people I get to work with. I, I love the attorneys I get to interact with, even uh, for the most part, my opposing counsel. <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> you know the appellate bar is a, a great place to 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 practice and to get to know the folks in there. Um, and I just you know i I really love teaching and educating and and I feel like appellate practice gives me a little taste of that. Um, in 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 trying to take some very specific subjects, learn them myself, um, boil them down to kind of something that everybody can understand, uh, and, and present them.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a great feeling to crafting a, a, a clear, succinct argument, isn't there? I mean, it just it it really feels like you have accomplished something when you can distill all that into you know a a few pages of a great argument i love that
1: yeah yeah it's it's something that all of us understand and i know that folks who love to go to court every day can't possibly imagine doing <laughs> or you know whatever one want to do but if you if you like it you know you like it
0: so you are currently the chair of the Florida Bar's appellate court rules committee and i should say that i served on the committee uh, previously i turned off last year after serving my uh, six years so I'm, I'm sorry I missed the chance to serve under your leadership <laughs> on the committee but uh yes, i'm I'm you glad really you that out. you're there <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you yeah no i i love I love doing appellate rules and i i I was thinking about it you and i i think got to work on at least one big project together didn't you you headed up the uh our our five day rule uh yes Fix, right? Yeah, the infamous five-day rule. Yes, the, 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 the well-remembered but soon-forgotten five-day right.
0: rule. <laughs> well, I want to talk some about the committee, and, and of course it's the Pell Court Rules Committee, but we normally refer to it as the ACRC, which mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a great acronym or not, but it's kind of stuck. Um, can you talk a little bit for people who might not know, like what is the role of the ACRC? Well,
1: the role is to uh, create and amend the appellate rules in, in the state of Florida. So anytime you are undertaking any appellate case in a Florida state court, you your procedure will be determined by the appellate court rules. When your briefs are filed, uh, how they should look, uh, what your timelines are for pretty much every step in the process from when you file your notice of appeal to when your record is prepared uh, to, again, when your briefs are due, when, how oral argument is conducted, when, uh, you know, your motion-free hearing is due. So anything that you need to know, how do I do that in an appellate court, uh, that comes from the appellate court rules, and we are charged with amending them when there's a fix that's needed, either because there's been a mistake made or the the procedure has changed because of time or, or court rules, court rulings, I should say. Um, and with creating them when there's new situations that arise or just, you know, we, someone, somewhere, <laughs> the committee or the court, I should say, has determined that we need a rule to govern Whatever the situ- situation is that there isn't currently a rule in place for,
0: yeah, and it's a very involved process. Uh, there are many steps to it, and I know you could you could probably tell us way more than we want to know about the process. <laughs> but but can you kind of just give us a a, a a sketch of you know how do we go from that? Hey, this rule needs an amendment to, uh, or we need a new rule to this is actually a part of the rules and just tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Sure. Uh, well, it, it starts with a referral and referrals can come from a few different sources. Uh, the most frequent one I would say is a lawyer usually, but it could be anyone, a member of the public, a member of court staff. We've had referrals from deputy clerks and trial clerk in trial courts, um, notices that we either need a rule or that a rule needs fixing, and they should the the preferred method i think the easiest way to get it before us is to email the chair and our uh, fabulous florida bar liaison who's heather telfer uh, at the florida bar and um, i agree with
0: that heather is amazing
1: <laughs> she really is i i cannot say enough good things about her and so i try to just say it every time her name comes up how amazing <laughs> she is but um yes uh, she, uh That is the chief way is to email us and um, let us know, hey, I saw this glitch in the rule or there's this, you know, typo, or I don't think that this rule works well with that rule anymore. Um, And I say that that's just the easiest way because that's a direct line right to the people that are going to get it to the committee. Uh, Sometimes people will email or send a letter to the Supreme Court. And the clerk there knows how to get it to us as well. But, um, you know, that's just another step in the process. So the first way, the primary way we get referrals is from lawyers, members of the public, just contacting us about an issue. Another way that we get a referral is directly from the Supreme Court. And these are... Typically, you know, we get an order saying, hey, appellate court rules committee, you need to uh, look at this rule and and figure out if there needs to be a fix. And we get a deadline with those of when we have to complete them by. And then the third way that we might get a referral is through a DCA court opinion. Um, and those aren't, you know, those, they don't direct us to take a look at the rule, but they might, uh, the DCA, usually it's in a I won't say it it tends to be in a concurring or dissenting opinion, I think a lot of times, but it can Uh come in the majority opinion, too, Um, says, hey, we're looking at this. This is what the rule says we're supposed to do, or this is what the rule told uh, the attorneys to do in this case. And we, the district court here, just think that the appellate court rules committee needs to take a look at that. Um, And usually those are brought to our attention very quickly. We have a membership that is, you know, reading every opinion that comes out. And so somehow (laughs) if I don't catch it, yes, if I don't catch it, um, and if Heather doesn't catch it, uh, which is much less likely, (laughs) then uh, it will, somebody will send it our way. And uh, so that's how the referrals come in. Once they come in, then Heather and the chair make a decision about what subcommittee it goes to. Um, And we have a number of different subcommittees that touch on – there's the big three that are civil subcommittee, criminal subcommittee, and general practice uh, subcommittee. And then we have a lot of of smaller subcommittees for more specific, discrete areas of the law. So we have administrative, workers' comp, family – uh, I know I'm thinking, uh, original proceedings, so if something arises under 9.100, it would go there. And uh, occasionally we have ad hoc subcommittees that the chair forms because we're working on a particular issue. One that's been around for a while now is e-filing. Um, it might even be a formal subcommittee at this point because we just know e-filing is here to stay and there's sure, going to be issues issue. that come up with it. Uh, and so it gets sent to one of those subcommittees and we just try to match it up with, you know, whoever it makes the most sense, wherever we think the expertise is going to go. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious. Like I said, if it's 9.100, we know it's going to go to original proceedings. If it's something dealing with 9.200, we know it goes to the Record on Appeals subcommittee. Um, But sometimes it takes a little more figuring out as to who is the best subcommittee to deal with the referral.
0: Yeah. So, so there's various ways that it, the process sort of starts and then it gets referred to a subcommittee and the subcommittee, I guess, as a group makes, for my recollection, we make certain, certain recommendations, right? And uh, then that has to be presented to the whole committee.
1: Right. Um, and it's really... It's really up to the subcommittee chair's discretion as to how the referral is dealt with by the subcommittee. Um, And it just depends. I mean, sometimes a referral comes in and it is a super quick, easy fix, and we all see, you know, oh, this is what words need to be changed in that particular rule. And the subcommittee all agrees, and that's all that needs to be done. And then it goes back to the full committee for a vote. Sometimes, though, it's going to involve a little bit more research, a little bit more digging. Um, And in that case, there will be a, you know, a sub-subcommittee form to look at the issue. And what that sub-subcommittee does varies, again, depending on what the referral is. Sometimes it's just they're going back and forth on language, uh, you know, and it might be three or four folks just kind of emailing around trying to develop the best language they can. Sometimes it's a lot more involved than that. I had one referral that I worked on early on dealing with records on appeal and um, trying to figure out in the electronic age how the rules should be amended to kind of better reflect how how records on appeal are transmitted. And – We actually took a survey. I I was fortunate to have on our Record on appeal subcommittee, um, the Marion County Clerk of Court, who helped us get this survey out to all of the 67 clerks of courts to get their thoughts on, you know, how they do the records on appeal and get their feedback on a variety of different areas. And I think we heard back from 50 plus of the clerks, and that was very helpful in developing a role. Sometimes it's You know, looking at how other states do it, sometimes it's researching what the case law is. So the sub-subcommittee is really who does the heavy lifting to determine, you know, should we amend the rule? How should we amend the rule? And what what are going to be our reasons for why we should amend the rule? And so you're right. Then it goes back to the subcommittee for a vote. Um, and then once the subcommittee has passed that referral, then it is is sent back up to the big committee to vote on um, and presented there. And it's amazing to me still how many times, you know, you will have looked at an issue as a member of a sub-subcommittee and you will have thought about it for months on end and tweaked it with your fellow sub-subcommittee members and then flushed it out at a subcommittee meeting and maybe you've had to go through a couple rounds of subcommittee meetings to get it just right. And then you get it up to the full committee and someone who's looking at it for the first time that day finds something so obvious that needs to be changed. <laughs> but yeah, that I, is the nature of the process.
0: To sort of paint the picture for people. I mean, this is so when the committee meets uh, when the full committee meets, this is a room of, I don't know, what is it, 50 or 60 people? It's a lot of people.
1: It, yeah, it's not it's quite usually, that many 40 it, it's usually i think it's usually about 50 people on the committee but we usually have some folks that phone sure. for the committee meetings so i i feel like we're usually in the 40 range
0: yeah so you have this this room of you know 40 to 50 lawyers uh and sometimes we can get into arguments about you know where punctuation goes and <laughs> uh, you know that sort of thing it, it definitely gets down to the nitty-gritty but yes it's um for people who are into the details and the minutia, it can be a lot of fun, but it definitely gets down into uh, to the weeds sometimes. <laughs> I'm trying sometimes to get these things does. just right. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, we want to get it just right, um, and sometimes it's minutia, and sometimes it's really big issues, and one of the best things about the committee is to me the diversity um, that we have on it and that's diversity in the traditional sense we might think of it but also uh, very importantly uh diversity in the practice area sense um because you know someone who is practicing in Criminal appeals all the time has a very different experience than I do with the courts um, sure. and and to hear that feedback um, and to see how this rule that you've proposed for general practice so it's going to apply to appeals you know criminal, civil or family or you know any of them probate appeals um, is is very eye opening so sometimes it, it can be very big issues that come up for the first time at a committee meeting.
0: You know, that's a great point. Uh, We have civil lawyers, we have criminal lawyers, we have government lawyers. uh, There are judges uh, who serve on the committee. So it's a pretty well family law lawyers and workers' comp lawyers. And so it's a good cross-section of the bar, which is very helpful in in getting these things right.
1: Absolutely. And that is is something that we've... uh, been talking throughout this past year in particular about ways to improve the rules process. And to me, that is just the most important thing that we need to keep in mind going forward is how to make, continue making rules committee membership. And especially, I mean, you know, I'm in appellate, so that's where my concern is. But I think in appellate, because you do have people from so many different (laughs) cross sections of the bar that have to interact with the appellate courts, um, it's really important to keep that diversity and to hear from the government lawyers and, and, and everybody. So um, we, that has been a a big priority and I hope it continues to be for the bar.
0: And so when we get through this process and and the the subcommittees and the committees have agreed on a, a change or a rule or whatever, there's a there's another process, right? There's a there's a there's cycle amendments and there's out of cycle amendments depending on how important things are. Can you talk a little bit about how that works?
1: Sure, I sure can. I've had the experience too of being <laughs> um, <laughs> rules chair uh, in a year where we had the previous cycle report come out. Um, so this was our 2017 cycle report. The Supreme Court issued its opinion on it, uh, adopting a lot of our proposals uh, and then also preparing the cycle report for the 2020 cycle. So it's three year cycles um, and basically what you do is you collect all of the proposals that that the committee has passed uh, in January, the year before your cycle. So in January of 2019, everything that the committee had passed for the previous three years was put together into this cycle report. Um, and from there, we publish it in the Bar News, on the Bar's website. I think that that has happened at this point in the cycle. If not, it will be very, very soon. And uh, you publish it there so that you can get comments from the public so that the lawyers that aren't on the committee can weigh in about what we're pro- going to be proposing to the Supreme Court. We also present it to the Board of Governors, who uh, gets to weigh in and vote on it and approve it, And only then does it then get reported to... To the Florida Supreme Court, who, of course, will be the ultimate authority on all of this. You know, sometimes when we are down in those weeds, it's important to remember that in the end, we're just proposing things and it's the Supreme Court that's ultimately going to adopt it. Um, and so, uh, you know, sometimes it's better not to let yourself get too weighed down in all of that. You want to give them a full and thorough vetting of everything you are going to propose. But um, there are many stops along the way before it becomes you know how the rule becomes how the proposal becomes a rule um, and it can work that way it works that way in the cycle and then, as you mentioned, there are out of cycle reports and we 've had a couple of those in my time as chair, and so these are rules that come up that the committee has decided need to be dealt with now. We don't want to wait for the 2020 cycle to propose them to the Supreme Court. So a good example of an out-of-cycle, uh, a proposal that we thought should be dealt with out-of-cycle was uh, a new non-final appeal category. And this is uh, in cases where a, a court order creates a permanent guardianship and the dcas have been treating those as non-final appeal or they're not they're not non-final appeals and so they get treated under the cert standard which has you know higher st- standards of review and it was pointed out to us by the person who brought this referral to us that these orders creating permanent guardianships can have very real, long-lasting impacts on parental rights. Um, they aren't orders terminating parental rights, so you can't appeal them as a final order, um, but they they may not be revisited for many years, and, you know, you're talking about the rights of a parent and, and a child here. And so that was something that the committee said, you know, we need to get that to the Florida Supreme Court right away. We don't want to wait for the 2020 cycle. So that's just one example of something that might go out of cycle. But aside from the fact that they hear it on its own, uh, the process is the same. It gets published. The Board of Governors has to vote on it. We get comments. And um, then the Florida Supreme Court does with it what it will.
0: (laughs) So it can be a very long process. I mean, things that are not deemed urgent enough to be out of cycle, depending on where, when the referral comes in, it could be three years or more, I guess, right? Even before successful referrals actually make it into the rules.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we had, um, well, I mean, you know, things that passed in, let's see, June of 2016 at that bar meeting, at our full committee meeting, will just now be getting into the 2020 cycle, I believe. I have my timing right there. Um, And then it can be, you know, who knows how long it may take the court to to wrestle with that material. So our twenty seventeen cycle, we didn't get the opinion in that till uh October, I think it was, of of twenty eighteen. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that would be a good for four or so, five maybe years since a proposal might've been made or passed by the full committee before it would be adopted into the rules and, and become become a real rule. Um, yeah, it can take a long time. There and is- sometimes it comes back. Um, that's something I've been experiencing with our out-of-cycle uh, reports. Sometimes you get a comment when it gets to the Florida Supreme court, you know, you've gone through all this publication, but it's not till it gets, you know, the Supreme court is hearing about it, that a comment gets filed and then you have to respond to that. And we've even had the experience of the Supreme court issuing orders to us saying, Hey, why are you taking out this particular sentence in the, in the referral? And so that, that um, can all lead to further and further delay.
0: That is one of the things I remember being on the committee is that sometimes you'd think that you're intimately familiar with the rules and the status of the rules, but sometimes it gets confusing in your head, right? When you're talking about, hey, I know this rule is changing. I just don't know when. So I found myself actually looking at the rules even more often because I'm like, I think the rule might be changing, but I don't know if it's changed yet. And, you know, trying to keep that all straight in your head.
1: It gets very confusing. And, you know, when you're on the committee, you have a six-year membership. Usually it's like Two three year terms, um, so you can re up for your second three years, and so that may be two cycles that you get to sit mm-hmm. through. And yeah, it gets it gets a little confusing um, it, to to remember, especially as we've hit this you know the cycle. the The court's opinion just came out at the end of last year, and now we're preparing the cycle for the next time around. Um, keeping track of all that in my head is is can be challenging. So I. I definitely keep a bookmarked (laughs) version of the rules handy on my desktop at all times.
0: So now when a cycle report goes up to the Florida Supreme court, uh, is there, there's an oral argument scheduled, right?
1: Yes, that is usually scheduled in June. I believe of when the cycle report uh, in during the cycle report year. So I think next June there should be an oral argument on uh, our 2020 cycle, so that that will be the responsibility of the next chair <laughs> um, to handle. Although sometimes we we have folks from the committee actually pitch in and help, especially if there's a particular portion of the cycle report that we know is going to be challenging because there have been comments filed and there's opposition to it. Um, and so I know in our last cycle we had. Our amazing chair at the time, Kristen Norse, she argued the main cycle report, but she actually had now Justice Luck, who was then a member of the committee, uh, argue another piece of it that was a particularly challenging portion of the cycle then
0: well so that's an exciting part of your job if you're uh, if you 're the chair during that, that that time period to to get to do that. I remember Kristen uh, doing that, and that has to be a, a, a cool experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, you get a Florida Supreme Court oral argument. That's pretty amazing. And the hard part to me would be keeping all of that straight. I mean, you know, any appeal that you're going to have at the Florida Supreme Court, anytime you're doing oral argument, you're worried about what if this judge or justice focuses in on this particular point that I haven't really thought through and I could see in a cycle report, that would be really challenging because our cycle report has numerous (laughs) amendments to it. Um, But yeah, I think that's a a very exciting part of it. And I believe uh, Tom Hall is going to be our next chair in the upcoming year. And so Tom is a former Florida Supreme Court clerk of court. And so I think he will be in a Great appellate advocate, so I think we've got a very good person uh, up for that job for next summer. Yes,
0: I expect Tom will be a, a great chair and is uniquely suited uh, for that job so that's that's exciting mm-hmm. too. What about uh, the committee members? Uh, people who are listening to podcasts but haven't yet served on the committee but might be thinking about it. What are the responsibilities of the committee members during their terms?
1: It's pretty much like any other bar service. It, it will be what you make of it. Uh, your, your responsibility when you become a member is to join subcommittees and everyone has to join one of the big three. Again, that's civil criminal and general practice. And then you're supposed to be a member of another one of the not big three committees. I don't want to call them minor committees. Cause they're not minor at all, but right. <laughs> um, one of the other committees. And the responsibilities, I mean, there are three meetings a, a year that coincide with the bar's meetings, um, and those are a few hours apiece, and you should be there in person, although at the moment, at least, we still permit phone uh, attendance if circumstances warrant it, but um, But that's, that's the main commitment. Now, once you're on those subcommittees, they have conference calls throughout the year to deal with these sort of uh, the referrals as they come in and as Heather and I or the next chair assign them out to the various subcommittees and, um, you would, you attend those conference calls and listen in and, and vote just like you do at the main committee meetings, uh, Aside, that's, that's what's required of you. Aside from that, we hope that our members will volunteer to work on projects as they come up. And that's really the way to, to get involved and to become, you know, subcommittee chair. Or if you want to be on the executive, uh, one of the executive officers of the committee, that's really how you do it is by, you know hey we have this referral that came in does anybody want to volunteer to take a closer look at this and kind of being the person that says yes i would like to volunteer to look at that and and getting your your research done or your wordsmithing done and getting it back to the subcommittee on a you know somewhat fast basis but right. <laughs> it's there's no there there's rarely a time constraint on any of this um it is is what we hope that you will do. And, um, uh, so that's, that's what's expected. It, it, again, it is really what you make of it. And I think that I just, when I joined the committee, I was interested. I, I volunteered for the very first project that was offered on the very first civil subcommittee call that I was on. Um, and from there just kept volunteering for projects, uh, mostly those that, you know, were interesting to me, or that I felt were going to affect my practice in in some way, and so I wanted to kind of have a say in how they got formulated. Well, it's sort
0: of like any so, any Florida bar activity like that volunteer type responsibility is that the people who show up and get involved and uh, take on uh, the work uh, rise up through the leadership and that sort of thing. It's the it's the there's some level of dedication is shown and uh, gets rewarded.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when I'm thinking of, you know, who is going to be in charge of a particular subcommittee, it's, it's, you're definitely looking to the people that all along have been volunteering even when they didn't need to be. Um, and, I can tell you the way I, I ended up kind of getting into the leadership of the committee was at the end of my first year. Um, and I measure all things in like births of my children just because I happen to have a, a few right. of them and, and it just coincided with, um, A lot of my bar activities. And so I joined the committee, uh, my, you know, my first orientation was like a month after my daughter was born, my middle child. Um, so, and she's six now. So (laughs) that's how I keep track of how long have I been on this committee. Yeah. Um, and after my first year, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I survived, you know, two children <laughs> being under three. My life is only going to get easier from here. So I happened to see the incoming chair at an event in Tallahassee, a, T- a Tallahassee women lawyers event. It was Wendy LaCosto, who was going to be chair. And I just mentioned to her, Hey, if you, you know, if you have anything I can help with, I'd really like to get more involved in the committee. And, um, she, uh, you know a couple of weeks later called me and said well you asked for it <laughs> and and asked me to serve as secretary for the committee which was a very um a difficult job and she knew that because she had served as secretary for two years, but a really great job. I, I really enjoyed being secretary. There was no better way to really get into the thick of things and understand what is going on and appreciate, you know, what is being said and who is saying what than having to listen to that meeting twice. I mean, cause you basically attend the meeting and then you listen to it again when you're putting your minutes together. Um, and even as chair, I don't think I have been, I could be as engaged in the meeting as I was when I was secretary. So that was a really great experience and I was grateful to her for asking me to do that. Um, and I'm glad that I didn't know all that I know now about, how much more difficult life was going <laughs> <Right>. to get. And <laughs> so I went ahead and That's volunteered how for Because <laughs> since then I've had another kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um but no, it was it it was a great way to get to know the committee inside and out. And um, you know, I have I will always and forever have the utmost respect for any other secretary I ever meet in any bar committee or otherwise.
0: Now, unless things have changed, I think that the committee meets three times a year in person. The full committee, is that right? Yes. And it's generally in conjunction with the Florida Bar meetings, and usually on a Friday morning.
1: Yes, yes, we have the the wondrous Friday morning (laughs) spot. So it's uh, and this year because we've been because we were leading up to the cycle report and trying to get things through, we had to keep having these eight a.m. meetings. So I am. I am hopeful that our I think we've already said that our June meeting will be at 9 which hopefully will be met with uh much applause from our members but yes Friday mornings during the bar 9 meetings,
0: feels better than 8 right
1: <laughs> it, There's something yeah. about it isn't there <laughs>
0: So if people want to serve on the committee how do you go about getting appointed
1: Well you apply uh it, for a bar committee you know when those when those applications go out i think it's usually in december and you know, the application, I don't recall it being particularly onerous. Um, You just indicate what committees you're interested in. And so that's the most important thing. If you don't do that, then there's not much else uh, we can do for you. But once you apply, um, it's the bar president who, the incoming bar president. So I guess it's the president-elect at the time the appointments are made, um, who makes that decision as to who will fill out the open positions on any particular rules committee. Um, So, It wouldn't seem like there's a whole lot you can do. Obviously, if you know the bar president, that might be someone good to go talk to. But short of that, the thing I would recommend to anyone who's interested in it is talking to whoever the membership of uh, the, whoever is a member of, I should say, either the chair or a vice chair on the committee at that particular time. Because, um, you know, as chair, I made recommendations to the bar president about, who i thought would be good on the committee and basically it was people who had told me they had applied and that they were really excited about it and they wanted to be on the committee and i'm not going to say the bar president doesn't you know listen to every word i say <laughs> that's for sure but i think that that most bar presidents take that to heart because if you want to know right who knows
0: who's better than, who's be than good you do a, right
1: yeah right about what it's going to take and what the committee needs and so um yeah that's that's the main Main point of advice I would give to anyone who's listening who wants to be on the committee is next year, talk to, you know, the current chair, it will be Tom Hall, um, or talk to whoever might be the incoming chair for the next year. And and hopefully they will send an email along to the president-elect and recommend you.
0: So now the work of the committee is is public, of course. Is there anything particularly interesting in the upcoming cycle of amendments that that we should be on the lookout for?
1: There are some big changes, and of course these are all, you know, subject to the Supreme Court actually adopting them, but – One of the biggest changes that's on its way that feels like it's been coming for forever because I think we passed it a a long time ago is a new document rule um, that is going to kind of mirror the document rule in the federal courts. But as part of that, the changes that that will bring, this will apply to all documents that you file in appellate court, um, the fonts will change. We're doing away with time. We're recommending that we do away with Times New Roman and uh, Courier New and instead suggest suggesting that we use Arial 14 point and Bookman Old Style, I believe also 14 point. And I think that was mainly done to uh, select more ADA Mm -hmm. compliant Mm -hmm. fonts. Um, That was the main point behind that. And as part of kind of this, it won't be in the document rule, it'll be changed throughout the rules. Um, We're switching from page count Limits to word count limits, a la the federal courts. So that's a a huge change, I think, for for most of us that have been practicing in Florida state appellate courts. Um, some other big changes. Notices of supplemental authority will now be permitted to have argument. <laughs> I have a feeling that that might draw some comments <laughs> right. um, I don't know if d c a judges can comment on that sort of thing, but <laughs> I think if they could they they might have something to say about that. The Supreme Court um, might have a position on that too argument. i suppose <laughs> they might too yeah they get they get plenty of notices of supplemental authority yeah. themselves um. So, but for the time being, that's our that's our proposal. Um, there's a lot of changes coming up with rendition. That's something that the committee has been struggling with for a long time. So, figuring out when a document is rendered in the trial court for purposes of determining when to file your notice of appeal um, has. Been altered by the evolution of electronic docketing. Uh, and so, you know, you've all, I know I've seen it plenty of times when a judge signs an order and it's got one date. It gets a date stamp from the clerk's office that's another date, and then it shows up on your electronic online docket uh, with a mm-hmm. completely different date. And so determining when your notice of appeals to be filed from that has been something that the committee has been working on for a while, and uh, hopefully we will clarify that. Um, there's... there's Let's see, the record on appeal deadline, moving up when that has to be transmitted to better reflect kind of our electronic filing world that we're in now. My most favorite change, the one that I am so excited about is not requiring you to file a separate tolling request in the Florida Supreme Court when you file a motion in order to toll the time for mm. the briefing mm-hmm. schedule. <laughs> that is something that I know has gone back and forth before. I hope that we will finally be rid of it. I'm I'm not sure what the point of it is. Whenever people ask me about it, do I really have to file the separate tolling request? The answer is yeah. yes, you do. If you want it to toll the time, it probably won't won't affect you if you're getting your motion in you know your motion for an extension of time in well in advance of when your briefing deadline is um but on the off chance that someone's not paying close attention you really want to have that separate tolling request so i am excited to to be done that with would that. be nice yes and then uh our uh, uh we've had a couple of rules that have come or proposals that have come through about circuit court appeals. So this is when you go from the county to circuit court, and that's been an area that, that our committee has certainly been dealing with for a while. And so a couple of those require, or a couple of those proposals are going to be addressing on banc proceedings. So so when a circuit court issues a, a decision in its appellate capacity that conflicts with its own (laughs) self (laughs) on a previous decision of that same circuit court. Um, And then also requiring all appellate courts to publish their opinions online. Um, That was something that, you know, those, for those people who practice in a lot of county to circuit appeals, they felt that that was something that really they need access to the decisions of the circuit courts in front of whom they're appearing. Um, And our hope is that by having them publish it on their website, those will get picked up by folks like Westlaw and Lexis um, so that it will make the research for those sorts of things all the easier. Mm -hmm or I should say all the possible, because I think in some circuit courts, it may not even be possible to figure out what the circuit court has done with your issue before, even though it may have had many a case touching on the subject you're dealing Mm. with.
0: Yeah, no, that would be a great change too. Well, it sounds like there's some exciting stuff Mm -hmm. subject to, you know, ultimately to Supreme court approval, but there sounds like there's some good stuff in this cycle.
1: I think so. I'm excited about it.
0: (laughs) Well, Courtney thank you so much for your service as chair of the ACRC it's it's really it's important work and it's it's sort of the unsung hero work you know it's not uh, glamorous or high profile but it's so important to uh keeping us all on track and keeping the, the the courts working the way they should and the cases moving the way they should and and thank you for for doing that work it's a uh, it's it's a great service to the bar
1: Absolutely. It's been, it's been a great, great experience. And I've learned more about the appellate rules than I ever thought possible. And yeah, I think you're, you're right with something you said earlier about if anything, it's just taught me to always go back and look up the rule every single time. So, <laughs>
0: Good advice. Um,
1: I would highly recommend, you know, membership to anyone out there that's, that's interested. Um, Cause I just think the more voices we have in the process, The better it is.
0: So, can I ask you a couple of my uh, uh, appellate geek uh, lightning round questions here to see see where you stand on some of these uh, issues?
1: Absolutely, I am ready to bring some controversy to (laughs) this discussion.
0: So, Uh, so, (laughs) Oxford comma, yes or no?
1: Yes, definitely. I won't be controversial there. I mean, I think we're aren't we legally required to do that now? <laughs> there? well, there's
0: been some, <laughs> right. There's been some opinions that have turned on the yeah. existence of the Oxford comma. So I, I'm really not sure what the argument is not to use it, especially in legal writing. It's just so much clearer, but yes. What about one space or two after a period?
1: All right. Hold your breath. I am a single <laughs> space after a period girl. Uh, I, I, when I, and I've listened to your previous podcast and I think I might be the first one to have this opinion. Is that?
0: I think so. I've been, I've been looking for you.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, let me, (laughs) let me bring the heat here because I have strong opinions about it. So when I clerked, we at the Florida Supreme Court, we were, we were two spaces Uh, folks there. They might still be. And then, uh, after I left the, my clerkship, I went to the Solicitor General's office and I had, uh, as part of my task there in the Florida Solicitor General's office, uh, one of like the geekiest jobs you could ever ask for and only me and probably a few people listening can understand how excited I was about this. But (laughs) uh, then Solicitor General Makar asked me to put together a style manual for the SG's office because we wanted all briefs to look uniform and we wanted to figure out, you know, what's the best way to communicate our ideas to the court and what's going to be the most kind of pleasing to the eye. And so I read a lot of, of manuals about Style, um, and mm-hmm. in that process, uh, I learned that we don't need two spaces after the period unless you're using monospace type. It's a it's a holdover from the days of typewriting, and um, you know unless you're using Courier New, which that might be the subject for a whole other podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> you just you don't need it, and so get rid of it and. Funnily enough, recently uh, when the Mueller report came out, I don't know if you saw this Facebook posting or this article that somebody shared on Facebook, but it was about how the Mueller report uses. Use two spaces after the period, and, the, and whoever posted it said this settles it. And there were a bunch of comments about, <laughs> yeah, that settles it. But the article, when you read it, was about how it was clear that someone from another time had written it because they were putting two spaces after the period. So, I encourage everyone to to move into the future and just put the one space after the period, and you know, your kids will relate to you better. And uh, it just, it, it's the way we're going. So. Join me in the 21st century, everybody.
0: You know, it's funny. The Mueller report, I looked at it, uh, read it, or at least read parts of it, and it has no... No typographical credibility for me because they had title case problems. Oh, okay, <laughs> they weren't using title case properly. Oh, so well, I, I dismissed it, the then. rest. <laughs> I dismissed the rest as you know, not possibly valid.
1: There you go. I, I, you know, as as I'm sure many a young law clerk will do to any briefs that put two period two spaces after a period. So,
0: <laughs> yes, that's, that's so anachronistic, right? <laughs>
1: Well, I'm glad to set a precedent there. Um, I think it's okay for anyone else who's a fan of the single space to come out of the woodwork now.
0: <laughs> what about uh, case names, underline or italics?
1: I We italicize here um, – that's what we did at the SG's. Uh, oh, no. At the SG's office, we actually underline and I, the Florida Supreme Court used to underline. So one of the arguments I had for it, and I think some of the courts still do, was, you know, you want your brief to kind of look like the court's opinion. So mm-hmm. that was an argument for underlining. But I think when all is, and I, I think a lot of them are moving away from that and to italics. And I tend to prefer italics, I think.
0: What about Westlaw or Lexus? Do you have a preference?
1: So I try not to get attached on that front. <laughs> I was a big Lexus fan for a long time, you know, all through law school and clerking. And then when I got to the SG's office, the, the AG had Lexus and then one day they came in and told us all tomorrow we'll, we're switching to Lex uh, to Westlaw. And so it was like a big shift in my, my, my life. So uh, I've used Westlaw ever since. I can't even remember what it was. I loved so much about Lexus because it's been so long since I've used it. But um, well,
0: Whatever I mean, it was, it's probably changed anyway. Probably,
1: <laughs> probably. But yeah. I hear from our law clerks that there are some good things about Lexus still. So,
0: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. What about uh, – do you use an iPhone or Android or other?
1: I only use an iPhone. That's that's all I've had for the last few years, um, I think, because it's good for people like me <laughs> who maybe aren't the most technologically inclined. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm an iPhone fan. And my husband, who's one of the tech guys at the First DCA, he uses an iPhone too. So –
0: what about uh, for pleasure reading? Do you prefer to read on an uh, electronic device like a Kindle or an iPad or do you prefer to read a book?
1: I do a lot of my reading for pleasure um, when my kids are falling asleep and I have to sit in their dark room and just be there with them. And so I like something with a good backlight on it. So I, I actually have a nook. I'm one of those people oh, wow. who has that. Yes. It's a, it's a holdover talk about, you know, another time. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like the e-readers. Um, I just like the convenience of having it with me wherever I go and, and you know, having it save my spot and all those all those good reasons for them.
0: I do like and that being idea. able to instantly
1: get, get the next book.
0: How do you, you get know, books you on a Nook? Do they have their own store?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's on oh, Barnes and Noble. Like you, you hook okay. into the Barnes and Noble store, and yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hard to believe <laughs> there's an online store that's not Amazon. You know,
1: <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not like downloading the tablets off of, <laughs> like, you know, the mount the mountain or anything. It's not. It's not that not that backwards.
0: All right. Well, that's good. So how can people get a hold of you if they want to uh, talk to you?
1: Email works great. Um, Obviously, yeah, if you have any rule referrals between now and the end of June, you can email me um, (laughs) with those. And my email address is cbrewer at bishopmills.com. And everything kind of spelled just like it sounds.
0: Courtney, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I hope that uh, I'll have you back at some point in the future. We'll find something else to talk about. Maybe we could talk more about One Spaces.
1: Uh, I I think you'll evolve. We'll be there. Thank you so much, Twain. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you. All right. Thanks to Courtney Brewer for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer that needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on the web. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions on the show, so please feel free to contact me. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.